Welcome to Wednesday night. So good to see everybody. We're in Genesis. So yeah, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis. And if you don't have a Bible with you, then go ahead and uh, just grab one from the back table. Um, if you want to slip out and grab one, you can help yourself there. So Genesis chapter 1, we left off in verse um, 25. And so just to, you know, quickly... Just to review Genesis, of course, the, the book of beginnings, uh, it's a super foundational book for us. Um, it's one, sadly, that's been, I think, kind of overlooked or unfortunately allegorized where people looked at the book of Genesis and the way that it is written have just kind of dismissed it as being this poetic form. And so what this is doing is really just kind of revealing, you know, God's heart, but just using references, fables, stories, or, you know, Adam and Eve just picturing humanity and not being literal people. And it's been kind of dismissed and, and, and put away in, the, in those terms to where Genesis has kind of lost its authority. But when you begin to, to displace Genesis and you begin to take away the authority of Genesis, then you're really removing the foundation for so much of everything else we have, like every, every doctrine, every theological truth you're going to basically find here in the book of Genesis. And so it's a book that is meant to be studied, a book that's meant to be taken literal as we're going to be doing here uh, through our, our Wednesday nights. So chapter one starts with God, as it always does, right? Amen? In the beginning, God. Period. Plain and simple right there. It's all about God. He's existing from all time. This isn't the beginning of God. It's stating this is when God began to structure the earth and bring in his creation and bring in humanity. But God's always been. And uh, he's eternal, always been. So here's what we looked at in chapter 1. Just reviewing those days of creation. Chapter 1 lays out first days 1, 2, and 3. Was really God coming and and doing the forming. Because remember, that was important. Verse two, the earth was without form and void. So when God created the heavens and the earth, he's got the world. Now it's, it's without form and it's void. So days one, two, and three is God bringing this form now to the world in bringing the, 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 the light and the atmosphere, dry land and plants. But then what's exciting is now days four, five, and six is God filling now what he's formed. So he's bringing the, filling in all the things that were void, basically. And it's all correlating, right? So day one, you got earth time, uh, light. Now in day four, he fills those things that he started on day one, right? Sun, moon, and stars. Day two, we've got the atmosphere, the expanse in the sky. Day five, he fills the expanse in the sky with birds, and he fills the sea with the, the sea creatures. Day three, he separated the land from the waters, brought dry land and plants. Day six, he fills that, right? I love that. God's just a God that loves to fill that which is empty and void, which all of us are apart from him, and God desires to come in and fill us with his life and with who he is. So I love that about God. It's what we see as we go through chapter one. Now, verse 26, we're continuing on just kind of looking at the what was taking place on day six there. It says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then moving on in verse 
27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So let us, it says right there, verse 26, let us know who's being referred to here. Because that's an important statement, one that has had various interpretations. Some have tried to do this hermeneutical gymnastics over trying to apply this to angels. God speaking to the heavenly hosts all around him, saying, hey guys, all right, we've kind of done everything else. What else do you want to do? Oh, why don't we make man in our image, right? And this is what some people have kind of interpreted that God is referring to here when he says, let us, all right, in our image. But then why would he say, let us make man in our image? You would think that God would make a clear distinction between who he is and who the angels are, that angels aren't made in the image of God, that angels aren't, aren't per se, resembling God. And in fact, it makes that distinction in verse 27, where it says, so God created man in his own image, right? God makes that distinction. He's not referring to angels. He's not continuing on to say, so God made man in their image, speaking of God and angels. It's God made man in his own image in, and he repeats it, in the image of God, he created him. So this isn't referring to God speaking to heavenly hosts and to angels. Rather, this is clearly referring to the Trinity, one God who is existing in three persons. It's a mystery. It goes beyond our human comprehension and understanding, yet we know that the Bible teaches it. There's a lot of people love to say, you know, the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, all right? That's a man-made thing. But all through the Bible, you see the very concept of the Trinity so clearly. Right in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God being referred to in Hebrew as Elohim, which is a plural word. It's used as a singular verb there, but it's a plural form, Elohim. Some might say, but hold on a second now. Doesn't the, the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse four to five declare, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isn't that saying then very clearly that there's only one God? Yeah, I won't argue that. There is only one God. But what's interesting is that in the Hebrew, there's two different words used for one. There's yakid, which is an absolute one. And then there's ikad, which is a compound unity. As you'd say, my wife and I are one. Ikad is used in the Shema, showing God plural. In other words, that God is a compound unity unity, the three in one. See, when rabbis explain that term, ikad, they, they hold up one fist and they point that this is one fist, but yet there's five fingers or four fingers and a thumb there. It's a compound unity. God is one God, compound unity. One God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all completely one but made up in eternity. And, and all through scripture, we see that very clearly. This is God speaking now within the fellowship he's been enjoying since before time, since all of eternity, God speaking to the members of the Trinity that he's in fellowship with when he says, let us make man in our image. Now, what does it mean? And I'm sure you've kind of wrestled over this. What does it mean that we're creating the image of God? That seems so odd to say something like that. And it's brought a lot of confusion and uncertainty to many people trying to make sense of what does it mean that we're creating the image of God? Does it mean then that God has like two eyes, a, a nose, you know, one that 
looks maybe like it's been broken a few times, right? Uh, you know, does he have a nose, a mouth? Like, what does it mean exactly that we're made in the image of God? Does it, it, are we resembling what God actually looks like then? Well, no, because we know that God is spirit. He's described in the Bible as having human features. That's called an anthropomorphic description because it's man trying to describe God who's without being, who's spirit, and, and man trying to describe God. So you'll, you'll see descriptions of God in the Bible like, you know, his arm is outstretched because we're like, how do we explain the work that God's doing in, in, in reaching out and touching humanity? We can't explain it in ways that, because all we can kind of relate to is this human body and the things that we do. So we have descriptions in an anthropomorphic sense in the Bible to try to describe God, but God is without bodies, without, you know, it's not that we're made in the image of God as though God has all these features that we have. So, well, thanks, Brandon, it's not helping much. What does it mean then? It made in the image of God. Well, rather, this is, I believe, referring to the makeup of man rather than the appearance of man. Man is basically a trinity, small trinity. God is a trinity. Man is body, soul, and spirit. We have the physical, the emotional, and the eternal. Unlike animals, we're created as spiritual beings, and we'll see that more as we move through our text here tonight. But it's evident that man has a desire to worship our creator. Now, people have twisted the concept around and they've replaced the creator with creation. They've worshiped that which has been made by man. They've, they've worshiped creation, the things around them, rather than worshiping the creator. Yeah, it's been twisted around and, and, and corrupted, but it reveals an innate desire for man to worship. Where'd that come from? You don't see animals having that desire. You don't see animals bowing down before they devour this carcass and say, thank you, Lord, for this food I'm about to eat. You don't see animals without propensity. It's something that's innate within man to do so. We were created to worship him. Psalm 139, verse 14. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Revelation 4, 9. For you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. They exist and were created to bring glory to God, to worship God. So being made in his image is something that sets us apart from all of his other creation, from the animal kingdom, from, you can say, well, plants, trees, they've got like a, a body, but there's something different because they don't have the same makeup that we have as humans. And, and, and another thing I love about this is being made in his image sets us apart from all the creation in the way that man is a creative person. Creative person. And, and just as God, as we see all through Genesis 1, is what? He's a creating God. And so when we're made in the image of God, we have the same kind of inclination to be creative. Some have that a, a lot more natural. I would wish to have a little bit more creativity. <laughs> I, got, I got ripped off on that one. Someone stole my creativity there. But yeah, some of you are like, yeah, man, I, I mean, stick men is like all I can draw. And that not very well even at that. But, but there's that, that kind of, again, innate inclination to be creative. You don't, every time you see a human creating a symphony, a painting, an artistic structure, it's revealing how we're made in God's image. Because you don't see an animal going and picking up a violin 
or a guitar and start strumming this incredible tune. When's the last time you've seen a dog do anything that has any kind of melody to it, right? I mean, they howl, they make some noises, but to pick up an instrument and, and, and be creative in the way that they present a, a melody, you don't see that. Or a monkey picking up a, a paintbrush and, and doing a, painting a Mona Lisa, right? I mean, you don't, you don't see that. Now, again, some monkeys might paint a little bit better than I can, but, but you're not gonna see them creating something that's gonna resemble, again, this, this work of art. It doesn't happen. There's a distinction with humanity because we're made in the image of God. Our morality, our sense of right and wrong, our ability to reason, our, our volition to, to just have that, again, that free will thinking, our spirituality, which is our ability to relate to God, it's those things that set us apart from all of the creation and it's what being made in the image of God is really speaking of here. But I think what really makes this practical for us is when you look at what an image is all about. Because an image is meant to portray, reveal, and represent someone or something. We'll have an image on the, the back of a coin right, of a person. That image is meant to represent that person. It's kind of like this is authoritative here, representing that person. And in the same way, think about that. We're the image of God, my friends. We're meant to represent him here on this earth. In the way that we're living and conducting ourselves, we're to be revealing the very nature and heart of God. Listen, in the 10 commandments, right, we see that the second and third commandment is reflecting this. We're to make no carved image, any likeness or anything that is in heaven above Exodus 20 verse four says, why? Because we're to be the image of God. We're to be the ones that are reflecting God. We're not to, it says um, in that fourth commandment, we're not to, or the third commandment, fourth commandment, Third commandment, I can't remember now. Oh boy. We're not to take the name of the Lord God in vain. Exodus 20, verse seven. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? Because it misrepresents the Lord. A lot of people will look at that and go, well, and it, and it definitely has this tied to it where don't use the name of the Lord like as a cuss word, right? That certainly has that in mind. But when you begin to look at this a little bit more, right? Don't take the name. Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain, I think more so has connected to it this idea of representing the Lord. To take the name of the Lord, you think about the priestly prayer, Numbers chapter six, verse 27, where it says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So to take the name of the Lord, I believe more so is about misrepresenting the Lord. God's purpose for us is to be bearing the name of God, to be bearers of who God is so that people will come to know him as the only true God. That's God's heart for us, right? When we fail to represent and bear his name properly, we're missing what we're to be doing. We're missing what God has created us to be. It's all tied to being created in the image of God. We're to be bearing the image of God, making him known, being a reflection of him and representing God. In ancient times, the king would set up an image or a statue of himself and say, where you see that image, I reign, right? Are we demonstrating that truth through our lives? Because at the heart of image is making visible God's character in word or deed as image bearers. 
It's what you and I have been created to do. It's how we're created in the image of God, but that is linked to it, great purpose, to be representing God, declaring the fact that God reigns in my life, God wants to reign in your life. I wanna represent the Lord and his goodness here. Now, did the, did the fall of man destroy that image of God that we're to be? Uh, no, I don't think it destroyed it, but I think it disrupted it, no doubt. Sin has marred it greatly, but the story of the Bible is all about God redeeming humanity and restoring his image in us. This is what's so great when you go through the whole context of God's word and you see this common thread being woven through is that God desires because of what sin has done to redeem us and to restore his image in us that we might again be these image bearers of him. We saw on Sunday in Romans 8 verse 29 that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Colossians 3 verse 10, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So God desires to, to restore what sin has done and how it's marred and, and disrupted us being image bearers of God. God desires to come in through Jesus and the redemption of Christ to again put that image in us and restore that to us. And just as we're made up in part a trinity, made up of body, soul, and spirit, we see the restoration that God is doing in each area. Look at what Boyce said, he said this, the glory of the gospel is seen at precisely this point. For when God saves a person, he saves the whole person, beginning with the spirit, continuing with the soul, and then finishing with the body, right? The salvation of the spirit comes first, for God first establishes contact with the one who has rebelled against him. That's regeneration, the new birth, the second, God works with the soul, renewing it after the image of the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This work is sanctification. Finally, there's the resurrection in which even the body is redeemed from its destruction, which will come at a future day. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Again, we see man being set apart in that they're the ones that are to have dominion now over all creation. Notice this. Look at here in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, cattle over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I can, I'll, I'll let that one be. I don't need to have dominion over those guys. I guess stepping on them is displaying dominion perhaps I don't know but we'll okay we'll think about that later but here's the the fact is that man is to rule and have authority over all other creation again that distinction that God's made with humanity now he's created them in his image very different than everything else that God has created now I want to remind us about something here because as God creates us in his image, God's not needing our fellowship. Sometimes, let me explain this. Sometimes people can get this distorted view that God was lonely, you know, and just he created us so he had somebody to relate to. 
Sometimes we can think that way, right? Well, God just created us because he was just so bored and lonely in all of eternity. He just wanted to have some kind of fellowship. But we've seen already, right? Let us. God's already been in perfect fellowship within the Trinity. God's already been experiencing now this relationship. What I love about this is that here's God not creating us because he needs us, but he's, he's creating us so that we can be partakers now of the same fellowship and union that God has already been enjoying from all of eternity. God invites us into something so radically special that I hope we catch and we, we get this and this drives us in our life to realize that God is a God who's created us for fellowship with him. And, and it's one of the greatest blessings that we could ever enjoy is to enjoy this union in the midst of the Trinity, this perfect fellowship and communion. He's invited us in to enjoy that. Uh, that amazes me, that blesses me tonight here. To think of that concept that God would be, be willing to do that, right? You know what it's like when you got a group that you're really tight with and there's somebody else over there, you're kind of like, oh, should we invite them in? They might really disrupt our, our fellowship here, right? They might really disrupt what we got here. Oh, that's a risk. But God's like, man, I want others to know what we enjoy. I want others to experience this fellowship and unity that exists within the Trinity. Oh man, I hope we're enjoying that and receiving that here tonight. So when we read again that in the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. That's referencing the idea that the image of God again is linked to male and female being together. This isn't, again, we're jumping, we haven't seen the creation of Eve yet, right? But we're kind of jumping ahead, male and female, right? He created them. Again, in his image, because together, again, experiencing relationship and fellowship together, man and woman. And again, that fellowship that we enjoy together is just kind of a taste and example of the union that takes place within the Trinity. The very union that we get to partake of as image bearers of God here. Look at verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, all through creation, like we saw already at the beginning, God's been filling that which he has formed, right? Now he instructs the man and the woman to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth as well. That's so cool. That's so awesome. Right? We get to be, again, uh, active in that, in that part of just multiplying and, and reproducing as God's given us the ability to do that. Now, what's, you look at this word subdue here, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. That word subdue is, is a bit of an interesting word. It speaks of taking control and actually overcoming by force. It, it says in 2 Chronicles 28 verse 10, and now... You propose to force. That word force is the same word as that Hebrew word subdue in Genesis 1.28. You propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves, but are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? It's interesting that this word would be used here in Genesis 1. Perhaps it's foreshadowing the battle, maybe, that's going to wage between sin and humanity, one in which man isn't going to be able to bring dominion until the perfect man comes onto the scene. 
Hebrews chapter two, verse six to nine, we read this. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him, speaking of humanity, you and I, you've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus. I love that. You see, the reality is, is that God's given us dominion over all things to subdue. And yet, because of sin, things have gotten away on us. Not all things are brought under subjection just yet. That's going to come again when Jesus returns. The perfect man who's going to bring all things under his subjection and rule and reign. Man, whenever you look and see that, oh man, things feel out of control. Things are feeling like they're slipping away. Things are getting away from me. What do you have to do? Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to the Son. Look to the one that is reigning right now who is in control and one day is going to bring everything under complete control and dominion and subjection to his will, to his rule, and to his reign. But we see Jesus. I love that. That's a good verse. Well, continuing on here, Genesis 1, verse 29. And God said, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food also to every beast, of the earth to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I've given every green herb for food and it was so. So check this out. It's pretty radical, right? Is that at, at the beginning of creation here, in God's original creation, everyone was vegan. Pretty amazing, right? Any amens out there? No? Okay, not, you're, you're not happy about that, are you? Okay. Emily's like, no, still not helping me. But all the animals, right? Everything that God created, all of them were herbivores right now. No one was attacking another for food. Man wasn't a target for lions or bears. God had a system in place where all the plant life had food, even the seed, I believe. Like where he says there, um, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. I think, no doubt that seed that reproduces in the ground, but also that seed. Uh, I think there's been some incredible discoveries where even the seed is packed full of just incredible vitamins that we miss out on oftentimes from just kind of, you know, not partaking of some of these things here that are, are great benefit to us. Apricot seeds, I've heard, just incredible benefits to fighting cancer and things that I've even heard about. And again, you have to look this up because I'm just throwing out some things that I've read uh, and I haven't had a fact checker on it, okay? But reading about some tribes even in India that have, have uh, some of these people have lived ex ex incredibly long lives because of some of the diet they've um, applied with certain seeds and things that they have around them. It's pretty interesting. But here's the thing is that animals didn't become carnivorous until after the flood. That's when man began to enjoy barbecues as well, which I'm thankful for. Listen, I thought about going vegan one time, but I just wasn't willing to give up animal crackers. I just couldn't really get around that one there. Um, but I did have a woman come to me one time. She said, hey, I recognize you from the vegetarian club. 
And I was like, I'm sorry, um, but uh, I had to tell her I've never met her before. Never met her before. Okay, all right. Okay, that was a rough one. All right. Never met her before. Okay, that's pretty good. Just let that sink in. All right, so this is what God's uh, intent was. And, and again, when you look at what's going to be taking place, you know, in the millennium, when you see that... Um, you know, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. Is there, is there going to be kind of a moving back to within the animal kingdom? I hope not within us, but within the animal kingdom. Moving back to this idea where, again, no longer, you know, carnivorous here, but eating and enjoying just the plant life. I know we're still going to be enjoying barbecues in, the, in all of eternity. Lord, please. Um, but verse 31, let's just move on here. It says in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So the last of God's creation, man, created on the sixth day, along with all the other land animals, right? That means that Adam's, this is interesting, this means that Adam's first full day was the seventh day, the day to rest with God. Right? As we're going to be seeing as we move along. That's so good. And it provides a valuable lesson for us that before we do anything for the Lord, we need to learn to just be with the Lord. Before we serve, we need to learn to sit and just take in from the Lord. All fruitful ministry flows from that place of intimacy with God. So often we're quick just to jump out and make things happen when the Lord says, first of all, just come into me, right? Come unto me, learn of me, and then I will begin to lead you on. Before we serve, we need to sit. Before we are, are just, you know, doing those things for the Lord, we need to learn to be with the Lord. So Jesus wants you to know the blessing of just resting in him so that we might better soar with him. I love, you know, what Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, a, a well-known verse, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Morales in his commentary said this, humanity's special place as elaborated on the sixth day is relevant only in the light of the seventh day. The extensive description of humanity's creation on the sixth day is primarily for the sake of understanding the prospect of communion with God on the seventh, actually serving to underscore its significance. As the crown of creation, humanity is made in the image, Salem and likeness, demut, of God the creator. No doubt the status entitles man, male and female, to rule and subdue the rest of creation, but the primary blessing of being created in God's image is in order to have fellowship with the creator in a way the other creatures cannot. So as we move into chapter two, we're gonna break down a little bit more the sixth day and that seventh day principle, all right? Look at chapter two with me. Actually, before we get into chapter two, I love this. Um, Sandy Adams put together this interesting correlation between creation and salvation, all right? Look at what we see here. Day one where we see light shining in darkness regarding our, our salvation. We see that incarnation of the Lord Jesus coming, right? Day two, separation of the waters above and below. Pictures the, the crucifixion. Day three, plant life created. Jesus becomes the first fruits of the resurrection. Day four, where the lights for signs and seasons. 
Here we see the preaching of the gospel, church being the light in the world. Day five, the water and air are filled with life, the work of the spirit unfolding. Day six is creation and dominion of man, the second coming of Christ. And then in day seven, what happens? God rests where then we move into the millennial kingdom, that great period of time of great rest and peace. Looking forward to that. Okay, so chapter two. It says in verse one, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So God establishes now this principle of six and one. So he creates for six days, right? He does all that work now, bringing the heavens and the earth and filling all these things now, six days, but on the seventh day, rest. We know the story, right? Now that rest, understand, wasn't based on God being tired and needing a break as my rest often is, right? Come in after an hour of work in the yard. Honey, I gotta take a breather. I gotta just lay down for a little bit, right? Maybe 30 minutes, but try to make it to an hour. But this wasn't a rest for God that where he needed a break. No, this, this spoke of completion and satisfaction in all that had been accomplished. This is God looking back and going, ah, it's done. It's completed. And God resting and enjoying all that's been done. Now, this isn't, understand, this isn't establishing the Sabbath just yet, all right? Well, we're all familiar with the Sabbath, but this isn't the Sabbath now being, uh, you know, being given as a, a direction or order for us in any way. That's gonna come in the, in the Decalogue, in the 10 Commandments that we see in Exodus chapter 20. God's gonna point back to this as a reference and, and an example. In fact, Exodus 20, verse eight to 11 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So notice that there, God brings us to reminder of his creation, right? In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and then he rested on the seventh day. So in this whole instruction of the Sabbath, God points back to the principle he's put forth here at creation. Now that word used for rest in Genesis 2 is the Hebrew word Shabbat. So Though the Sabbath wasn't fully instituted yet, the principle is certainly in mind where God is seeking to establish the need for man to work for a period of time, but then to come away and just rest and to enjoy God and his creation. And God sets that pattern and principle as every seventh day. Now that number seven biblically is closely connected, closely connected to this, the Sabbath, the very Hebrew word for seven is Shibatheim. And in scripture, the number seven is, um, is often speaking of completion and fullness, isn't it? The Hebrew calendar would be built on a series of sevens. In fact, check this out here. 
So there's the, the Hebrew words for rest and for seven. You see the, the kind of similarities that we see there. But in the fact, in fact, the way that Genesis is laid out in the beginning from chapters one, one to chapters two, three, bears the marks of literary artistry, as does the structure of the rest of Genesis here. Because what we see here, the correspondence to the first paragraph, chapter one, verse one and two, with chapters two, one to three, is underlined by the number of Hebrew words in both being multiples of seven. Chapter one, verse one, consists of seven words. Verse two of 14. And chapter two, verse one to three of 35 words, seven times five. So the number seven dominates this opening chapter in a strange way. Not only the number of words in a particular section, but in the number of times a specific word or phrase recurs. For example, God is mentioned 35 times, earth 21 times, heaven and firmament 21 times, while the phrases, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, occur seven times. So we see the importance of this number all throughout scripture, especially here in Genesis. And now we're coming to the seventh day, an, an important day. It's interesting that on the first six days, we ended each day by saying, so the evening and the morning were the, you know, first day, were the second day, were the third day. The evening and the morning were the fifth day, the sixth day. But on the seventh day, we don't see that conclusion being made. It doesn't reference that again. David Guzik says this. He says, this is because God's rest for us isn't confined to one literal day. In Jesus, God has an eternal Sabbath rest for his people. And that's the point, isn't it? of the Sabbath. Physically, it had great application in that God never intended man to just keep working, working, and working. You know what happens when you just keep working, working, and working. You're gonna burn out. You're gonna get fried. Something's gonna break, right? Something's gonna break down. You just can't keep going at that pace. God says, I know that you are, are your, your frame, right, is weak. You, you can't handle that. So you need to come away and rest with me and enjoy me, kind of refocus, recalibrate, let your body just kind of take a rest. It's got great application physically. Uh, unfortunately, the religious leaders, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes at the time of Jesus had put so many demands on the Sabbath that it stopped being a day of blessing and, and it became that day of burden. Jesus was condemned by them simply for healing on the Sabbath. So they looked at the Sabbath as like, oh no, we gotta be sure that we are fulfilling all these requirements that we have set out now. We gotta be sure that we're not doing this or doing that there on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, understand, was never meant to be something that restricted us or became a burden to us. It was something that was meant to restore us and, and help us in a sense, spiritually, the Sabbath was picturing and pointing ahead to the rest that we'd have in Christ for salvation. Jesus has completed that work of redemption. He's seated at the right hand of the Father today. What does it mean when somebody's sitting? It means, ah, work is done. I'm in rest mode right now, right? And, and, and we can rest because the work has been done for us. We're to find our rest in Jesus. See, after the writer of Hebrews talks about the rest of God after creation, and, and he talks about the rest of the nation 
of Israel was to enjoy when they came in the promised land, he goes on to say in, in Hebrews 4, verse 9 to 11, he says this, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. He just talked about the rest of creation, the rest of moving land of promise, but then he says, but there remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews is saying, my friends, you need to look to Jesus. Just like we saw Hebrews 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus. Look to Jesus because it's in him that you're going to find your rest. It's Jesus that fulfills the Sabbath. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 2, don't let anybody look down upon you regarding Sabbaths or new moons or all these different things. We're no longer bound to these things. Sabbath was for the nation of Israel, okay? Now, we're no longer trying to fulfill a Sabbath, but we understand the principle that God has laid out here at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter two, where you, you work and you take time to rest. You take time to enjoy God. You take time to enjoy his blessings. Now, we oftentimes relate the Sabbath to, you know, worship, coming together in church and worshiping God. And certainly, that's a, a good thing to do, right? Uh, but again, that Sabbath is not this time where you just sit back and you can't do anything. Sabbath is where you just, you just are enjoying God. Taking a time of rest, that means you're going out fishing, you're playing around a golf, you're doing whatever. It's just enjoying being with God and enjoying the blessings that he's, he's given us here. So God sets his day aside and he sanctifies it, it tells us, right? Uh, God blessed the seventh day, verse three, and he sanctified it. Again, that, that word is tied to just making it holy, right? It's set apart. It's, it's a day that's set apart with a purpose. And, and it's to be a principle, it's to be followed and trusted as we take time to enjoy our work, the fruit of it, and more so to enjoy God and and rest in him. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. See, they had twisted around. They began to look at it as like, we got to fulfill the work that we've put all before us to, to accomplish the Sabbath. We got to do all these things or not do all these things just so that we can. And they, they flipped it around and thought that we have to be those that are, are completing the Sabbath and fulfilling the Sabbath. Jesus says, listen, Sabbath was made for you. To be a blessing, that principle of getting alone or, or getting away from just the work and the focus and the drive that we often have to have through the work week, but just to get alone and just be with God. Sabbath was made for you. God, this, this is something God wants to use to bless you and not be a burden for you. So moving along here, we gotta keep going here. Verse five, no, verse four. Here we read in verse four, chapter two, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So as was popular now in, in Hebrew writing, what they would oftentimes do is they would start, you know, describing, they'd present something, an event, a story, they'd present it, but then they'd go back now and kind of fill in some more of the details. 
They present it in a very kind of, you know, broad way, but then come back and fill in the details. That's what we're seeing here now in chapter two, where, where the, the author here, Genesis, is, is coming along now and saying, we're, we've touched briefly on these things in chapter one. Now let's fill in some more of the details and the bigger picture of what's really happening there, what had already been accomplished in chapter one, right? So this is the story now. This is interesting. This is the first of the divisions by which the book of Genesis is broken down by. This word history is the Hebrew word toledot. Toledot is a word that also means generations, and it's where the name Genesis originates from. Um, the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, called the first book of Moses Genesis, which was an anglicized version of the Greek word Genesios, meaning a number of different things, including origin, history, or genealogy. So that's where we get the word Genesis. Now, um, again, it, it comes from this idea of this, where many people see the book of Genesis as having these different breakdowns now, right? In each of these 10 Toledotes that we see in Genesis, they provide the major structural and conceptual framework for the whole of Genesis. Do I have it down there? Oh yeah, okay. We got the verses there. Uh, chapter two, verse four, chapter five, verse one. Six, you can continue it on there. But each heading is gonna start, here it's history, but in other headings is gonna have the word generation and it's gonna highlight a, a particular person and everything that kind of flows from that person here is sort of the, what's being concentrated on in that section. It's how many people have broken down the, the book of, of Genesis here. So this is the first of it now, the history here. And it says in the day, which is interesting, it, that day is most likely speaking not of you know, a period of time, but rather that first day of the creation week when God made the heavens and the earth, right? It's referred to again in, in chapter two, verse four. Reference is made to the fact that this is before the other days of creation was any vegetation yet on the earth, right, on day one. And so that's what's being referenced here. Now, we come to, again now, in, in verse four, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That's the first time that we see this name of God being referenced Lord or Yahweh as it is in the Hebrew. Throughout uh, chapter one, verse one, the generic word for God was used to denote deity as the transcendent creator. But now we're introduced to God's personal name, Yahweh. It's translated as Lord because of the ancient Jewish tradition of substituting uh, in Hebrew the term that means Lord Adonai for Yahweh. The use of Yahweh throughout this passage underlies the personal and or underlines the personal and relational nature of God. This is, this is Yahweh, this is who God desires to be. It's linked to, again, that term, I am who I am with Moses at the burning bush says, God, who shall I say has sent me? I am who I am. It's linked to this personal name of God, Yahweh. As Elohim, God is the creator. But as Yahweh, he is in covenant relationship with humanity. I love that here. So we're introduced to that name at the first here in Genesis 2, verse 4. Now look at verse 7. And the Lord God 
formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. So here's the deal. Man was made from dirt. We're a bunch of dirt pegs, my friends. Just wanted to encourage you a little bit here tonight. Keep you humble. But what's interesting is the same 17 elements that's found in dirt are the same 17 elements that make up our physical body. That's so cool. Man is a Hebrew word, Adam. And that Hebrew word for dirt or for ground is Adama. So that's where we get the name Adam. He's made from the dirt, Adam. Made from the ground, Adama. Formed now when he says that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That word formed is the Hebrew word Yatsar. It's used also in scripture to speak of God as the potter. Isaiah 64 verse eight. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. The same Hebrew word for formed. You are our potter and all we are the work of your hand. See, it's not just something that God has done with Adam. It's something he continues to do with each and every person created. We're formed and we're made in the womb. We're not a living being when we emerge from the womb. We're a living being when God forms us in the womb. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. I formed you in the womb. God, that potter, continuing, just like he did with Adam, continuing to make us, shape us, form us. You know, a sad thing that I've seen developing lately, um, on social media, I've seen uh, a, a famous couple, you know, kind of a couple that's in, you know, Hollywood or whatever, famous for being famous. I don't get that, but, um, and, and, and they'd had a miscarriage, a sad, a sad thing. And so they shared on social media, mourning over the loss of their son, right? And, and, and people come along, you know, well-wishers, just um, supporting them, grieving with them as they should. Other, you know, Hollywood types that come along and shared similar stories of how they've had a miscarriage, how they've lost their children, mourning over. The, the sad thing for me is that these are the same people that will have no problem with abortion promoting these things, saying, oh, no, that's not really a child yet. And yet when it's a, something that they've lost, that they've wanted to have, suddenly this is their son. Suddenly this is a child now. And you see, what grieves me is just to see this, this kind of hypocrisy where, where these people will claim that abortion is just a woman's right, that it's not murder. This is just a, a clump of cells. It's not an independent life source. But you can't have it both ways. It's a child when you lose it to miscarriage, but it's not a child when it's aborted in their eyes. And it's hypocritical, and you wish these people would see the absurdity of dismissing a child in the womb as being an actual human because they're not dismissing the child when they're planning on keeping it, when they're grieving over the loss of it as though it's the loss of their child as it is. And it's completely 
hypocritical. This is a child that God has formed right there in the womb, Scripture tells us. Perhaps, listen, perhaps this attitude comes about just because of the fallout from evolution, where evolution breeds a devaluing of life. Yet more and more people are discovering the complexities of the human body when you begin to look at the incredible intricacies of molecular biology in our DNA that this is all basically digital. Our DNA, just it's amazing the advancement that people are seeing within our DNA, that there's no way this could have just happened through some evolutionary process, through just random chance over, over billions of years. It's too advanced. Michael Denton wrote a book in 1986 entitled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. And in it, he revealed some of these cutting-edge discoveries that's presenting staggering evidence for an intricately put-together creation by which evolution is becoming less and less tenable. I believe he wrote that book coming at it from uh, the, the perspective of an atheist and realizing, or, or previously that was his, his perspective, and realized that you just can't hold that view any longer when you begin to look at science even in, in, in the DNA. But yet, we've already known all this from God's word, haven't we? Psalm 139, verse 13 to 14, for you formed my inward parts, you covered or, which means you weave, you knit. It's like what God is doing with our DNA, just putting that all together. You cover me, that's the word, literally means to weave or to knit. You've done that in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Well, we see here with Adam that God now breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now that word can also be translated as spirit. That's where God created man different than the animals and other living beings. He breathed his spirit into man by which he could now have, again, fellowship with God as spiritual beings. Again, the distinction is made. Other creations of God, whether it be the plant life or animal life, they've got the body, but God hasn't breathed into them this life-giving source, this spirit that now makes them alive and, and capable of relationship with God. Interesting that at the fall, the fall has damaged that relationship that God is intended to have with man. And, and where man must have a new birth by the Spirit to be renewed in order to enjoy this fellowship with God once more. Remember after Jesus had risen from the dead, he gathers his disciples together. It's in John chapter uh, 20, verse 22 gathers his disciples together. And what does he say? He it says he breathed on them. He said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. I believe it's then that the, the disciples were, were truly born again. So what, what Jesus said in Nicodemus all along, you know, a, a person needs to be born again, born of, of water and the Spirit. Here's God at the very beginning breathing this life-giving spirit, making man, humanity, distinct from everything else, giving them the ability to relate to God through the spirit being given. 
the fall has marred all of that to where we need to be born again, regenerated by the Spirit. Adam and Jesus, interestingly, are often compared throughout Scripture and used as comparisons with what we lost through the first Adam, but now what we gain through the last Adam, speaking of Jesus. God took Adam and placed him in this garden that God had planted, and it says in in verse 8 that this garden was in Eden. Moving along here. Now, we're not sure exactly where Eden is today. A lot of people like to, you know, try to think and assume and try to target on a map. Interestingly, we see various rivers named here coming up that are rivers in existence today. Look at verse Verse nine with me here. It says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Awesome. And it'd be nice to know where Havilah is today, but... And the gold of that land is good, all right? No fool's gold going on there, right? This is the real deal, right? It's good. And then Bedalium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. Let me just pause there because we know of Gihon Springs there in, in Jerusalem, right? That, that David accessed. That's not the same Gihon that we're talking about here. It's different. Verse 14, the name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So because we see some of these rivers in existence today, right? Um, you know, uh, the Euphrates and, um, oh, yeah, you see... Tigers, thank you. I'm trying to find that here. I'm like, where did that go? The tigers. So we see these rivers in existence today, and, and we often naturally assume that then Eden was where those are, you know, there in the Middle East, the area known as the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. We often assume, well, that's got to be where Eden is. I mean, we see the identity being mentioned here. But one thing we have to take into account is the, the effects of the flood, all right? Again, this is all pre-flood. And the flood drastically changed the topography of the then known world. In fact, 2 Peter 3 verse 6 says, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So when Noah and his family get off the ark, they're beginning to move out and no doubt seeing things different, probably going to places they hadn't been before now. They've been on sailing on the water and and they're moving out. So now, They're seeing things, and perhaps it's them that are are naming these places now, naming them after sources that they heard already passed down to them through the historical record. Just as when when we see, you know, European settlers come to North America and they name several cities or, 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 or rivers after names that they had there in, you know, Europe, right? And and so it's the same idea. These perhaps were rivers that were now being named as familiar names that Noah or his, his family had heard and seen and, and being passed on. I, I believe the, the, the land completely changed after the flood. That what we see being described here was no longer in existence. 
that the Garden of Eden, as it was created here in Genesis 1 and 2, was no longer in existence. I don't believe that there's some secret, you know, Garden of Eden that's yet to be discovered. I mean, could you imagine that was still sitting around somewhere? Like, I mean, if that ever got discovered, like, that thing would just become, you know, the vacation spot. It would just get, just get completely idolized, right? That's why a lot of these things are no longer in existence that's, that we see through scriptures because if they were discovered today, they would just completely become an idol to people. And so I don't believe that Eden, after the flood, was ever in existence again as it was here. That's, that's just my, my belief here. But we noticed some things. I mean, in that day, I mean, God made this great. It had gold. It was good. Bdellium and the onyx stone, verse 12. Are there, Bdellium was a, a gum resin, okay? That's interesting. A gum resin is mentioned also in Numbers 11, verse 7, when they describe the manna and they, see the color, they say the color of this manna is like bdellium. I, I kind of maybe picture that being a little bit resembling like bubblegum ice cream or something, you know, whether you go with the pink or you go with the blue, they're both very satisfying, very good. And uh, I think that's maybe what manna maybe was resembling a little bit. Imagine just like these pink Things, you know, all around the land, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? But I don't know what it was exactly, but I know I'm craving some bubblegum ice cream right about now. Or manna, I'll take either one. But Adam tells us in verse 15 that the Lord God took the manna, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So we see that Adam had the responsibility of tending and caring for this garden. That wasn't to be a strain, right? It was to be a blessing, Work is not something that is to be a burden. Now, there were, you know, outcomes from the fall that made work burdensome. But man was made to work. And work was not meant to be a burden, but to be a blessing. Adam would greatly benefit from, you know, tending and keeping the garden. There'd be much, you know, the fruit of it, the fruit of his labor would be a great blessing and benefit to him here. So I think there's something that is, it, we're to be productive people. God's created us to be productive, to be workers. And there's great, I think, blessing and satisfaction that comes in, in fulfilling that which God has created us to do and to be. Well, listen, let's, okay, let's do this. Um, oh man, should we go verse 16, 17 and end it there or just save it for next time let's let's just do this let's do verse 16 and 17 and we'll end it after these two verses okay um this is a good note to kind of end on maybe i don't know but verse 16 and the lord god commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but of the tree the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die and i'm sure you've all wondered at some point why, God, would you put a tree in the garden that they're not to eat of? That's cruel. Any parent with young children know that's not a good idea. It's a recipe for disaster, right? You put something on the counter, don't touch that. What are the kids gonna do? They're gonna be all over that thing. That's a recipe for disaster. So why, why would God do this? Here's the simplest of answers. Because for there to be a loving relationship between man and God, for them to have true fellowship, there had to be a choice. 
There had to be a choice because true love demands a choice. That's the simplest way to go about proving man's volitional response to God's love. See, if I'm the only guy left in the world and I go to Michelle and I say, Michelle, will you marry me? What's she gonna say? Yes. But for the rest of our relationship, I'm wondering, did she say yes because I'm the only option? Because there's no other choice. That's not gonna make me feel good that she's in this because she wants to be in this. I'm gonna be doubting that the rest of our relationship, right? In the same way, if God just puts everything in the garden and says, here you go, just do it. Do everything you want here. Have, it, have what you want. Well, there's no opportunity then for man to choose right and wrong, to choose between serving God and not serving God. Some people might go, well, why wouldn't God just, you know, cause Adam not to do this? Well, then again, he's just creating robots, right? And, and you're not gonna have any kind of real relationship with something that can't choose for themselves and decide what they wanna do. Love needs a choice. And because Man was created with free will. That free will had to be exercised to choose to follow God or not follow God. Now, here's the thing. God didn't make this hard. He put lots of trees in the garden and said, of all the trees, go ahead, have your fill. But just don't eat of this one tree. It wasn't hard. And I don't think God, you know, put of this one tree that not to eat of like a bunch of, you know, Honey crisp apples, nice and juicy and lush. And all the other trees are like a bunch of deformed, worm-riddled apples on the tree. I don't think God put it out like that, right? I think it was very, like, you guys are gonna be more than satisfied with everything you got here. Just don't partake of that. I don't think God made it hard. But again, man was pulled into doing that which was wrong. And God gave the warning to them. Didn't make it hard. And he also made it very clear. The day that you do eat of it, you shall surely die. You will die spiritually. In other words, your eyes will be open now to spiritual matters. Your relationship with God is again gonna be affected and marred. And you're gonna die physically one day. Your body's gonna go into decay now and progressively move towards dying. That that's, can be even translated, dying, you shall die. And God gave the warning to them. God made it very clear. But you see, I'm thankful that God put that tree there. I'm thankful that God's given us a choice. Again, as we talked about, you know, sovereignty versus free will, I think this makes it very clear that, that man has free will. Because without that free will, then we don't have a choice. Then we're just a bunch of robots that God just creates to, to just be obedient to him no matter what. But God's a loving God. And God wants us to choose him. And when we choose him, then we begin to know the depth of his love. 
we think we're choosing him, but what the Bible says is that we love him because what? He first loved us. Suddenly when we make that choice and say, God, I want to follow you. I want to I I walk in obedience and love to you. We begin to realize all the more just how good and how loving God is that he would give us opportunities. We've seen tonight here, let us make man in our image. As we've seen tonight, that God invites us in to enjoy unity and communion with the very Godhead. That, 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 that blesses me, that amazes me. And I pray that we're walking in that and enjoying it ourselves. Well, we'll pick it up there in verse uh, 18 next week and, and we'll get into that in as much in chapter three as we can. Not next week, in two weeks time, okay? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come before you here tonight. Thank you for our, our gathering that we can have here where we can just worship you and, and, and look at your word and look at this creation story all the more. And as we focused on this creation of man made in your image, I pray that that truth would just sink in today that, that we've been made different than everything else. We've been made as spiritual beings to be in communion and fellowship and relationship with you. You desired that, Lord. And you've not just forced that upon us. You've given us a choice to choose you and to choose life. And the blessing that comes when we walk in obedience to you, we just know all the more your great love, your, your, your heart towards us. And I pray that you would just encourage us in these truths here tonight and, and, and cause us to see just the great blessing that you have for us, Lord. May we go forth from here tonight and this week just being image bearers of you representing you, shining forth greatly just who you are, declaring the, the goodness and the love of God in and through our lives and all that we do, Lord. So use us, continue to just breathe your spirit into us, fill us, Lord, refresh us and strengthen us to carry out your work and your will. So we ask this in your name, Jesus, amen.